Welcome to the Place and Culture podcast. I'm Sean Houston. On Place and Culture, I feature conversations about current work in geography and in related fields in the arts, sciences, and humanities. In this episode, I talk to Tim Cresswell, currently professor of history and international affairs at Northeastern University, where he is also associate director for public humanities at the Humanities Center at Northeastern. We talk about being a geographer, being a poet, and being a creative writer. A starting point for our conversation is Tim Cresswell's 2014 Cultural Geographies article, Geographies of Poetry, Poetries of Geography. Tim, thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Sure. So to begin with, I wanted to start by referencing the Cultural Geographies article that I've taken as our jumping off point, where you write about a decision to become a poet as opposed to someone who simply writes poetry. What does that distinction mean? I'm sure a lot of people write poetry. I mean, I know that when I was growing up, many of my friends gave it a go at some point from the age of about 10 onwards. And as I understand it, it is a pastime of many people. And it certainly was for me growing up. I think the difference is about taking something seriously. And that means reading a lot. You know, I, for a long time, I didn't read much poetry other than what I learned at school. And reading contemporary poetry, I think is very important. You know, finding people who are really good at it and find, and learning from them. So around about 2008, I decided to sign up for a course that was advertised in the back of the London Review of Books uh, from Faber and Faber, the, the lead independent publisher of poetry in Britain. They had a course called Becoming a Poet. And I sent them stuff I've been working on because I've, I've been writing poetry in little bits for many years before that. And the sort of um, a little short letter about why I wanted to do it. And I didn't really expect to get on. So I understand it was quite competitive. And I did get on. And that exposed me to, oh, I can't remember, like half a year of Tuesday nights, seminars, uh, workshops, and um, one Saturday a month, I think, for the whole day. And we were visited by 12 or 13 of the lead poets in Britain to talk to us about their art. I got a real appreciation for how much work it takes to do it properly. And so I think the difference is that you have to spend time and think hard about it and subject yourself to the you know other people's uh, opinion you know share your writing and submit work at some point i mean not too quickly but at some point start to risk it in the in the poetry world which is very competitive so that's what i mean i think it's about time and professionalism and getting a sort of self-identity involved where you can say with a straight face to someone i'm a poet which takes a bit of doing i mean if Say to most people, they'd laugh at you. <laughs> so sure you Arriving in an airport in Canada, I was going to Banff, where they have an amazing literature school. And I went to Banff, and it was a, the first one I did was a week of full-time sort of poetry with a bunch of other really talented poets. But when I arrived at the airport, I was asked, what are you doing? And I said, I'm a poet. And I felt really good. Yeah, that make, and that makes sense um, to me in terms of being able to say things with confidence because of the work that you put into it, as opposed to something maybe you just do for your own personal enjoyment. Where does geography and poetry intersect for you? I was interested when I was an undergraduate. We, I had a course in, at University College London. It must have been about 1984 or some, sometime around then. And it was my second year as an undergraduate. And to be honest, I'd gone through the first year of my undergraduate degree kind of being bored. It was, it was okay. But, you know, I did my development course and my course on the Soviet Union, as it was then, my methods course and all those kinds of things. And then suddenly in year two, there was this course called Humanistic Geography that at the time was taught by Jackie Burgess and Peter Jackson. 
And it just made me suddenly interested. It was like, wow, this is really interesting. My mind is engaged in a new kind of way. And part of that was we did some reading of um, literature, you know, creative literature. One of the assignments was to go to a place in London and write about it and come back and read it to the class and see if we could work out where it was without saying where it was. And a couple of us wrote poems, including me. You know, you started to go with travel writing and other kinds of things. And we read some of the, you know, there was a series of pieces from about, I don't know, nine, late 1970s onwards about not just geographies of literature, but the possibility of geography as an art. Uh, most famously, Donald Meinig's paper, which I think was, was 84. You know, there was others. There was a, there was a guy called, his surname was Jeans from Australia, who wrote about um, poetry, geography, geography as an art. And, um, and, and John Reeford Watson, the Canadian geographer, the soul of geography, I think his paper was called. And there was, a, and I think, you know, um, what's his name? Fraser Hart also did that presidential address to the AG where he said, you know, the, the regional geography is what he called the highest form of the geographer's art. So there was a whole series of things in, in the firmament, if you like, about what the relationship was between geography and various forms of creativity. But no one really took it and did it in a consistent way. I, I mean, I say that, but John Reeford Watson actually won the Governor General's Prize in Canada for his poetry, so he did. <laughs> but um, for the most part, it was another world and something that most geographers didn't take seriously. They did take seriously that geographers should study it. I mean, that became quite... It was still a minority pursuit, but certainly geographers from the 70s onwards started to write about literature. But they didn't write literature in the creative sense of the word. And then I suppose later, some geographers started to play around with formalization, particularly you know, when post-structuralism, post-modernism started to become things of interest to geographers. Uh, some geographers began to, not writing poetry, but certainly poetically dealing with text and its ambiguities. I'm thinking here particularly of Gunnar Olsen and Alan Pred. They both did various kinds of ways of, in a very modernist way of experimenting with language, which I found interesting. You know, it's not always successful, but I've always found it interesting. So there's a sort of um, tradition there that I could place myself in as a geographer. And then I suppose, and then more recently, there's been, certainly in the UK, but I think it's pretty true in, in the US too, uh, is a sort of popular geography, or at least semi-popular geography, that's become something that you find in bookshops uh, in the pages of review newspapers and London Review of Books being an example, but uh, people writing psychogeographic texts, um, people like Will Self in, um, in Britain um, writing a series called Psychogeography for one of the daily papers. Robert McFarlane, he's a wonderful essayist and writer about the world, starting to write things that get closer and closer to geography without being academic. And there's a kind of mini industry of that kind of work being done, in the, in, especially in the UK at the moment. So there's a lot of different things happening around the time I started doing this, a long tradition of thinking about it. I mean, right now, it seems like the kind of phrase that gets thrown around is creative geography, and that there is kind of a moment that we're in where some geographers, at least, are interested in literary and artistic practice. I think that, as you pointed out, there's a lot of geographers writing about doing those things, but not a lot of examples of people actually doing them. But that at the moment, it seems like you could look at geographer writing poetry and, and be able to also consider geographers making films or geographers doing other forms of creative writing. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a few. I mean, it isn't it isn't overwhelming. So two or three, I can think of doing what I would call a professional mode. Um, there are people certainly making film. I mean, think of something like Matt Gandhi's film making of uh, sort of water politics. That you could do a practice led geography PhD, which means doing it in a similar way that you might do it in creative writing or in fine arts. In other words, a large portion of it be creative practice, with some portion of it explaining it or text about it. And certainly, I think in the in the pages of the journal uh, Cultural Geographies, which I've been editing, there was a lot of discussion of different things that can happen, and people working with artists and people doing the art themselves. There's a new journal called Geo Humanities, which I'm starting to edit, which is coming out soon. And if you go online, you'll find you'll be surprised. Uh, I think there's um a good four or five creative contributions to issue one, including by creative writers who aren't geographers. Uh, including by a video artist. There's a number of things in there. Um, so I'm really interested in getting that interface going in general. But I think the danger is, like I was suggesting in the answer to your first question, is people easily think they can be creative. And, and in some essential way, everyone can. Everyone's creative in everyday lives. But to do things well is it's, it's the same as doing anything else. If you want to do mathematics well, you have to work at it. If you want to do geography well, you have to work at it. A geographer can't just decide, I'm going to make a film or I'm going to write a poem or I'm going to, you know, unless they're extremely talented in some weird way and do it and it'd be good. So the danger of opening this up is that we get lots of stuff that isn't good. And we're not entirely sure as scholars how to react to that in terms of editorial and refereeing processes and things like that. Yeah, I think everyone that I've talked to for the podcast so far has been sensitive or aware of the image of a geographer who wakes up one day and then just starts stumbling around in some field that other people have been working on for years. I've actually had a number of people give different responses to that problem. Some people suggesting that geographers who want to do this kind of work should find like artists and writers to collaborate with, but that your role is sort of bringing the kind of understanding of geography to whatever project you're working on. To other people who are like, well, if you feel moved by something, you should go ahead and do it. And then other people who seem to be emphasizing, like you, the idea of taking seriously the sort of art and craft of whatever it is you want to do. This process for me has taken, I can't imagine how many hours and, and how many sets of rejection. I mean, if you think rejection is bad in academia, you should try creative writing. <laughs> you know, the average poetry magazine, now even one that is quite generous and you're most likely to get published in, probably accepts about 8 or 9% of what they get. The, the really the really top ones, you know, use less than 1%. I mean, they get, they get thousands of poems a year and publish a couple of hundred. You know, 30,000, I heard. <laughs> There are people that can get published without all that work, but most people can't. Uh, so now I've been in the course I mentioned at Failure. I've been to Banff twice. And I did a, a, a week retreat in, in Britain, and I did a, I've done a PhD in creative writing, which I just finished, which was using muscles, if you like, that I haven't used before. That was the way I took it seriously. I'm not suggesting everyone has to do that. That's a bit extreme. And I did it because I really loved it and wanted to. I don't think you can just wake up and do something. So in general, then, though, if someone uh, who is either already a professional geographer or maybe a graduate student who wanted to incorporate some kind of creative practice, I guess your main sort of guidance would be take whatever it is you want to do seriously and go learn from people who are more experienced than you in order to understand how to use, you know, whatever tool or art or craft it is that you think you're interested in. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, having a mentor of some kind, maybe, you know, if, if you're a geographer and has, has a supervisor, as a geographer, it may be good to have another mentor for the particular practice that you wish to do. It may be that you come to geography and already know something else. I mean, that's also happening. We're getting, because geography is interesting. It works the other way around. And this is the great thing of what's, what's happening at the moment. Geography and what we do, do as geographers is interesting to creative practitioners. You know, we all think, well, you know, poetry is interesting or filmmaking is interesting or, or whatever you know, art form we like, but we have to remember that geography is interesting. When I was in my first workshops, was I would say mumble about being a geographer, but they were really into that. I was like, wow, what does that mean? People don't know, you know, what being a geographer means. They, they have a very old-fashioned or stereotype version of it. And when you start to say all the different things it is, they start to get interested. You can get people interested in it. And we, we can bring that. So some people are starting to come, you know, I think it's true in uh, in North America as well as the UK, but in the UK, which I'm most familiar with, people are coming who are already professional photographers or um, creative writers or video makers and saying, I want to do a geography PhD. And that's what started the practice-led component of the PhD at Royal Holloway, where I used to teach. It wasn't so much geographers waking up and deciding to be creative, but creative artists wanting to do geography and to continue with the creative art. So that's the other way around. And then they have to take geography seriously. So this conversation kind of brings up a topic that's come up in my previous interviews, which is looking at the system of rewards in academia and what sorts of opportunities or challenges that presents to particularly geographers who think they want to incorporate some artistic or literary forms into their work. I'm wondering what kind of consideration have you given to those questions as you've decided to pursue poetry? I think when I was starting to pursue poetry seriously, I wasn't really thinking about rewards that were you know, external to the process itself. I mean, very few poets make any money, so monetary considerations are almost non-existent. I mean, it's just not that kind of thing. That's a really good thing about it, in my view. There's very little outside of the process of doing it that is rewarding. I mean, there are, of course there are. You get a poem and likes it. That's rewarding just like anything else, and you get a response. Now, in terms of being an academic that writes poetry, it gets a bit more complicated because there, I guess there are rewards in terms of people's level of interest. You know, you get a certain amount of credit, I guess, for doing it properly. The risks, I don't think I personally had any risks of any significance. I mean, the only risk I can think of is people laughing at me. And that's always the case with anything you're exposed to a public. People might not like it or it might not be as good as you think it is. I think the level of ridicule could be higher if you failed at doing something like poetry. I think the risks and rewards for somebody who's doing a PhD or, or you know, or as a junior member of faculty are different. I mean, I'm, I don't need to worry too much about the risks of doing it. In many instances, geography departments, particularly in the US, don't have that, that generosity. You know, is it hard enough just to do cultural geography, let alone write poetry <laughs> as, as part of the job? So, you know, th there is that. But I think the risks for, for younger people, are, you know, that's the risk, really. You're, you're spending a lot of time doing something properly. And does it count towards tenure? Does it count towards your PhD? Is it something that can get you a job afterwards? Uh, all of those things that are important things for people doing PhDs or postdocs or um, young members of faculty to think about, uh, the, those risks become multiplied, especially if it doesn't succeed. The fact that you started pursuing poetry more professionally after tenure, that's maybe that wasn't a conscious decision, but it was certainly something that was enabled by having that kind of security in your position. It was enabled by it. I mean, but I think that that's opening up. I mean, I think that's opening up 
in the context of where I used to work, certainly PhD students are starting to do it now and doing it well and getting published and um, succeeding. But I think that's in, in a particular environment which is extraordinarily supportive to a diversity of ways of doing geography. And I don't think that's always the case. And I think that it's becoming understood as cultural geographies has been published for a long time, the GA humanities is emerging, that these these are valid. I mean, I saw a job announcement on the Critical Geography Forum just the other day for GA humanities position. I was like, I've never seen one before. That is interesting. I mean, because I think that even some of the younger people that I've talked to for this podcast are kind of worried about what some of their decisions might mean. But at the same time, they are in graduate programs that seem supportive. And it would seem at some point that that would translate into some changes in the field in terms of how we assess the value of different kinds of work. Yeah, I mean, there are certainly places where it is supported. I mean, we have enough things coming in. I know that. I mean, the University of Arizona is a good example of where people are doing interesting stuff. When people started doing feminist geography, you know, it was supported in a few places like Clark and, you know, University of Edinburgh and I know, other places where it became associated with feminist scholars and geography. In other places, people would just say, just laugh and, and, and ridicule it. And, and if you wanted to apply for a job and say, I'm a feminist geographer, the, the, the risks of that far more risky than or were far more risky maybe still are in some places and saying i'm a poet you know all of these things have sort of centers where they where they're accepted and nurtured and incubated and then places where it's you know they're not the thing is i think i, I always recommend to phd students that you can't do a phd for anything other than you know you, you do, you're doing it for a career and a job but you really have to love it you have to have the enthusiasm and energy to live with it for, you know, five, in, in the US case, five or six years, in the British case, four years. If you're good, and if you put the energy in, I think you'll win over. It's better to take the risk than to do something you're not really interested in that's unrisky. Related to this discussion is a point that you make in the article, which is that in some ways, this distinction between creative writing and other forms of writing is is kind of curious because, of course, all forms of writing involve creation or creativity. But at the same time, the distinction does seem to mean something. What is it about writing poetry that's different for you than writing academic geography? Or, you know, what kind of new habits have you tried to or had to develop as you as you write poetry, especially for publication? The, the focus in poetry is so much more intense on a word by word, line by line level. When I first started doing the poetry course, I thought, well, this is going to help my academic writing because I was, and I'm, I've always been interested in writing. I think that not enough attention is paid to that as we develop academic careers. But I think that isn't necessarily true because poetry is a different writing than academic writing. So it didn't necessarily help academic writing in any way, but it, it focused the mind in very different ways on noticing surprising things and little things that don't have to matter in some, you know, the thing that matters in a poem isn't the same thing that matters in an academic paper. I think in an academic paper that matters is some contribution to knowledge, you know, whether it's empirical or theoretical, that takes things forward in a particular way. In a poem, there are different things that matter. There's things to do with, with surprise, uh, with seeing things in a, in a slightly slanted way that hasn't been seen before. And it's minute in its focus, usually, I mean, compared to an academic paper uh, that's, that's singular rather than generalizable. You know, that those things make them very different practices. And uh, But it has made me, you know, intensely aware of, you know, the individual sounds of words and the way they look on a page, the shape of things, how something reads rhythmically, all of these things in a com combined way. And, you know, uh, it starts to intersect more and more with my other writing. So when I wrote my first poems, soil 
Mostly they are poems with geographical themes that any geographer could easily recognise. Um, but they're individual poems, apart from a section in the middle, which is about 20 odd sections on a, a poem called Soil, which is heavily based on soil science, which is quite amusing because I never really paid much attention to it when I was studying it. And, you know, it's much more experimental than the rest of the book. You know, and I was quite happy for poetry to be poetry and geography to be geography, given that they're embodied in the same person. But as um, time's gone on and the poetry was accepted as on its, in its own merits in poetry magazines and through the book coming out, I'm now happier to sort of admit to my geographer poet status and try and think about ways of combining them. So the book that's coming out in October called Fence includes long sequence about Svalbard in the high Arctic and it includes the use of historical archival work uh, on journals of people who traveled there before me because I traveled there for two weeks and then finding other people who've been to exactly the same spot and their journals from uh, the 17th and 19th century so it started to combine what you might think of as the work of a humanistic scholar with creative writing and I'm also writing as an as a geographer I'm writing a book about Maxwell Street in Chicago which I've been writing for 10 years and I essentially have a book in the normal way that I would write a book. But I'm now thinking I'm just going to play with it a bit more and, and bring it towards the poetry. So it's the, so the two areas start to meet somewhere in the middle. You know, Fences are going to be a short sort of 70 page book, which is obviously poetry, but we're informed by research. And the Maxwell Street book will be a you know 100,000 word book, but I'm going to structure it in a way poetic. It's hard to explain because it's something until you see it. I mean, I've got to do it myself because I have text and I have to change it now to make it do this thing. But I, if you want, you, I can read you a little bit of Fence so you can see what I'm talking about. Yeah, that'd be great. So Fence is structured in 40-odd parts and it has a number of different modes of register. One is me because I went to um, Svalbard as part of a Nowhere Island art project which is a really interesting project associated with the Olympics in London. And I was invited on board this sailing boat in Svalbard with sort of 12 other people from different walks of life and different writing skills. I was invited as a geographer, not as a poet. Uh, I was inspired by finding this fence, well, not finding it, but being shown this fence, uh, which is about 80 degrees north. And the guide you have to have all the time with you when you're in Svalbard because of polar bears um, said, you know, this is the northernmost fence in the world. And you know, I didn't immediately twig a poem or anything, but I just kept thinking about come all this way to what seemed to me like the ends of the world, and there was this fence. And, and when you first look at it, there's no apparent reason for it. It's just a bunch of posts around rocks. And, and the idea of a fencing point and a mark of territory made me think about that in relation to the connections that Svalbard is produced by, because it's been explored by these explorers. It's been, you know, coal has been produced there for the ex-Soviet Union, uh, lumber washes up there from the Soviet Union. It's a very connected place, Svalbard, even though it seems remote and completely different from anywhere else. So I started to think about this fence and write about it. And so I write in my own voice, I write some kind of uh, sort of third person-like perspectives. And then these two journals, you know, I take, the, I take the text and I scramble it and mix it up and add some of my own words, but basically using the text that exists and making poems out of it. So one of the people that went there that I found the journal of was a woman called Leonie Dornay. And she was the, f the first recorded woman in Svalbard who visited in 1838, age 19. And she read a journal in French, which I roughly translated and then used the text that I had, which would have been a very bad translation, um, to, but I had a bunch of English words and I then used it to start writing her bits, if you like. So I'll just read you some extracts from her voice. So this is part six. My dear brother, like everyone, 
you wonder how I undertake this great project when you see me start with such fear. The interest in my story will grow as I reach the high latitudes of old Europe. My arrival will benefit from the merit of originality, being the only woman who has undertaken such a journey. Here's our route. Holland, Hamburg, Denmark, Sweden, Western Norway, Christiania, Trondheim, the North Cape, finally Spitsbergen, if it please God. And in the next section, seven, Amsterdam is still a gay city, lively and picturesque, everything interesting for the traveller. Brugge is not a city or a village, more an agglomeration of houses crafted by owners rich enough to follow their addictions. Hamburg is delightfully located between the sea and hills covered with fertile plains. At the bottom of the hills, the Elbe runs like a big snake in tall grass. Copenhagen is one of the richest, most learned cities. It contains valuable collections of medals, bas-reliefs, Etruscan vases, a natural history museum, beautiful shells. Trondheim, if you like, Trondheim, as locals and geographers call it, is a wood city which burns every 10 years. The people do not care. One day in Tromsø is much longer than is necessary to know the place by heart. Being eager to leave, I re-embarked. Hammerfest. These ten letters do not do you justice. The northernmost city that exists, the last cluster of houses in this strange corner of the world. So there are sections taken from um, Leonie's journals and translated in the worst way possible because my French is terrible and then rearranged and made. You know, there's poetry in them. You just find it and then make the most of it. This is a bit that's really my voice. So this is part nine. Two weeks out of range, no signal, iPhones off. Clad in neoprene, merino wool, high-performance fleece, breathable shells, we roll off zodiacs like marines, dive-bombed by a skewer, alert to our trespasses. Our guide stands guard with his banger, flares and rifle, keeping polar bears at bay. Red rock backdrop to yellow sweep of sand, the moss, brilliant green, fragile, off-limits, an eroded path to glacier blue. A cabin stands empty, home for two guards in high season, keeping tourists off tombs. So, you know, the fence, it turns out, is a fence that's constructed to protect the graves of whalers from the 17th or the 16th and 17th centuries. But you can't tell a grave because it's like a pile of rocks. You know, the fence connects Svalbard to the rest of the world. It's there, first of all, because the whalers came starting in about 1596 or something, which is incredible to think of. <laughs> it's still not an easy place to get to, even with planes. And, you know, th that's why the tombs are there and then the fence is there because the tourists, because even though it seemed to me like it was the end of the universe, tourists come there in cruise ships into the fjord and they get loaded off onto this uh, same land I was on, you know, hundreds at a time to look at this place where these tourists, uh, where these whalers are buried. And it's also extraordinarily beautiful. That fence then becomes a symbol of connection as well as a symbol of a kind of territoriality, which is what, what got me going. So you, I think you can see that, you know, the processes that are going on are a combination of what geographers might traditionally be interested in and something poetic, which is meeting it somewhere. Listening to you read the excerpts, I was wondering how much attention do you pay to the poem on the page as opposed to how it would sound read when you, when you write poetry? The poem on the page is most important, and the way that these look 
are, um, you know, you might not be able to know from the way I read it. If you read the book, you will get a whole set of things you can't possibly get from me reading it because the kind of scattered nature of what I'm writing about is reflected in a wide set of forms and shapes on the page, including concrete poetry and erasure and other poetic techniques. Um, you know, there are sections here where there's essentially tourist text from tourist magazines with erased words, so you end up with a completely different poem from within it that says the opposite of what the tourist texts are saying. You can't get that from me reading it. But on the other hand, you know, poetry's always been a, you know, it starts as an oral tradition and it's impossible to divide it from the possibility of it being read aloud. You also get something different from hearing it than you would from reading it. You might, you might be more accessible heard than read. I'm wondering, you mentioned you know, the beauty of the place. And poetry, of course, is kind of writing that's used to express those kinds of feelings and emotions, much more so, obviously, than academic writing. I'm wondering how much writing poetry sort of opens up different ways of exploring and expressing feelings about place, you know, even from your position as a geographer. Our stereotypical view of poetry is, 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 a, is as a form that's emotional. And certainly there are long traditions of romantic poetry and, um, you know, more recently confessional poetry where that becomes, that's certainly part of what's going on. So, you know, it was, the romantics were opposing a kind of emotional um, relationship to the world to rash, the rationality of poetry that came before it. I mean, a lot of the poetry that came before the romantic you know, it was a extraordinarily reason-orientated rather than emotion-orientated. Similarly now, conceptual poetry of one kind or another often can be, you know, there's objectivist poetry, which is, you know, trying to get away from that emotional sense rather than feed it. And I think that some, somewhere in my poetry, certainly in this book, I'm there's emotion in there, but it isn't at the forefront of what I'm writing. It's one of the things that I'm confronted with when I'm thinking about writing poems is trying to engage that part of me that I don't engage necessarily that well. I don't always want to, but sometimes I do. So this, these poems in Fence, I think they have a, a simmering kind of set of emotions underneath. But, you know, they're not, they're not primarily emotional in the sense of my, the writer's emotions being revealed by it. There's definitely a set of subjectivities involved of mine and the people who wrote the journals that I'm using. But it's also another way of thinking. You know, you think through poems in an interesting way, through juxtapositions and kind of little fragments that become interesting because you see them differently. In, re in reading the poems that, uh, well, the poem that is attached to the Cultural Geographies article, and then the set of three that are in the Geographical Review, there's a clear to me at least, a clear sort of attention to humans and nature in those poems. And they all sort of start out with feeling very much like kind of more traditional celebrating a natural scene, but they end with sort of bringing in human activity and impact. I'm wondering, you know, how much of that kind of work sort of informs your other poetry as well, or if that's just these examples that I, that I happen to have access to. So I'm interested in the human impact on the natural world. And I probably write about that more in poetic form than I write about it as a geographer, to be honest. Uh, you know, the natural world doesn't figure that highly in my geography. I'm really interested in na the natural world interrupting the human world. <laughs> so, um, you know, in, in soil, there's a lot of material, what you might think of as the natural world uh, in the city. In the urban poems on the whole, but they are things you might think of as natural appearing in the city or, or in human landscapes of one kind or another. So I can read your poem for soil called A Glass of Water. So this, this poem is about um, water. It uses a common urban myth that may or may not be true in London, at least, that when you drink water in London, it's passed through eight bodies before you. 
So I take that literally in this, um, and think about water in bodies in the city. A glass of water. They say this glass of water passed through eight bodies before mine. Starting near Heathrow, a Sikh cabbie, the morning shift. Then teacher between classes, a young woman, Kiwi, fit to burst. A Southall market seller, bagging mangoes and bitter gourd. A man who lives on a Brentford boat, pissing straight into the Thames. Kevin, who drank six pints last night and has a killer thirst. A gardener at Kew, tending orchids, blooming just one day. Carrie, just up from bed, still red raw from energetic sex. And old man Andy up the road, downing morning pills. They say my body is 60% this. Blood, spit, plasma, piss. A constant whoosh and sluice, tidal, tethered to the moon like a walking, thinking sea. I half expect to stretch and flop, a water balloon about to pop and drench my neighbour on the tube with my multitude of juices in waves. Six small splashes, then a seventh monster, enough to drown the underground. And, you know, there are a number of, there are, there's a poem you can find online about the fox that climbed the shard when it was being built, the skyscraper in London. And there's poems about flowers that can only exist in places with lead pollution. So they exist on old lead mines. And when the, when the soil becomes clean, the flowers won't exist anymore. So that interrela- interrelation is, what I'm, is one of the things I'm fundamentally interested in, combined with something that everyone will realise I'm interested in, which is displacement, when, when things are somewhere strange and you don't expect them to be. Yeah, actually, hearing that poem just now, it was very easy for me. Or my brain immediately went to Doreen Massey's writings on space and place that's very similar to the passages she's written about was the high street and... Kilburn about all the different connections between people as you come home from work and it seemed very similar to that and being about connections and intersections and how they're kind of shifting and changing. Yeah, absolutely. In in the case of water, it connects us all in interesting ways. And the other kinds of things, myths or sort of they're true myths, but myths nonetheless. You hear about that we're all made of stardust or you know the the, the atoms that we're made of where they've been that kind of thing is a kind of fundamental link that i find really interesting where it gets played out in different ways so did the thing with the fox and the shard actually happen yeah no they one one morning workers arrived on the 73rd floor of the shard which is now that i think it's the tallest building in europe before it was finished and there was a fox on the 73rd floor and at that time of course it, that meant it climbed stairs and even ladders there was like bits of workers' lunch and things that they had been grazing on, and they named it um, Romeo because you know the shard is just over the, the Shakespeare's Globe in that same part of London, so it's Southwark, which is Shakespeare territory, so it's appropriate. Um, but yeah, I read the story in the paper and thought well, that's really amazing. You've already alluded to this. Say a little bit more about the publishing review process and how you've how you've navigated that between being familiar with the academic side and then becoming more acquainted with the poetry side. Well, it's a very different world, and it's interesting starting doing Geo Humanities Journal to th- figure out how we're going to review creative work because creative people who aren't from geography but you know are creative writers interested in geography, their experience of review is very different from an academic review. So an academic review, you know, you ask lots of questions, and uh, you, you know, everyone knows what that's like. In a, in most cases, 
creative writing reviews are we like it, we want to publish it, or we don't like it and we won't publish it. And the reviewers are not blind. It's not blind reviewed. It's totally visible. Often, you know, poetry magazines are full of well-known poets because they want well-known poets in them, so they might actually sell some. So it's quite hard when you're not well-known to get published because they're not blind in any way. And you also don't get too much, you know, you're, they're either going to do it or not do it. Um, if a really good journal and really good editors who have a lot of time will suggest some changes. So we've had uh, poems in, coming out in GA Humanities issue one that we've suggested a few little things. I mean, adjustments of language to a few poets, but mostly they, they've they been reviewed by, edit, by editors and a couple of other poets who are on the editorial board in the same way that creative writers are normally reviewed. I mean, but the chances are also massively different. I mean... The average academic journal is, a, is in the end about a 25% acceptance rate. That is after you've done all your revisions. The tiny percentages in creative writing. So the process is entirely different. So there's no blind review process. There are a few creative writing magazines where there is blind review, but not many. So when you reviewed the poetry for Geo Humanities, you did that blind or not blind? I'm trying to remember. And we knew, so, so some of the people on the editorial board knew who they were because we get them. And we did a lot of the reviewing on the editorial board. And we will probably continue to do that with, you know, poets and people who are sending us things often that we've asked for, in effect. So there are some creative pieces by geographers, and they are blind reviewed. That's an interesting question, you know, in terms of do we treat the work differently based on who's submitting it? Or do we just treat work differently based on what it is? Yeah, we're working that out. Right. Well, solicited works too. That that changes things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we're still working that out. I think you know I had this process with Geographical Review in the, in the Geographical Review issue, which I think is a fantastic issue on creative geographies. I submitted poems, and the review and the editors did send them out. I think blind to well-established poets. And of course, the well-established poets then don't quite know what to do either because they haven't done academic reviewing. So, what do you mean review? I'm not the I'm not the editor. Why am I doing this? You know, they wrote essentially three lines to my thing saying, yeah, I like it. Uh, and then one guy, uh, he doesn't just do this as a blind thing. I want to be in touch with them. Does it make sense otherwise? And so, you know, he obviously knew who I was by then, and I knew he was. And we exchanged a couple of emails. He said, what do you think about doing this change? And how do you think about, um, you know, moving this to the end? And it was great. It was like having a really experienced person working with you. You're not going to do that in an academic paper, obviously. Um, and it's impossible to do it. I mean, if, if Geo Humanity starts to attract hundreds or thousands of creative writing things we can't do that we know we're not set up for it so we we're experimenting at the moment all all things are refereed sometimes they're refereed by the editor by members of the editorial board and if it's the editorial board then they're more likely to know who it is that submitted it you know for instance um, in, in issue two i asked for a poem from philip gross who is one of the t.s Eliot award and one of the best poets in britain one of the best poets in the world and uh, he sent one and I'm not going to, you know, that's not going to be blind refereed. I mean, it, if it had been rubbish, I think I would have had the courage to say that this isn't working or, you know, or make these changes. But it was a fantastic poem, so it's straightforward. But, you know, we are, we are on a, we're definitely on a, I'm feeling a little bit anxious about talking about this, to be honest. We're on a, a new trajectory and it isn't clear how it works yet. Well, these kinds of issues came up when I, I spoke to um, the current editors of the journal that's published at the University of Arizona, um, You Are Here, which has historically been a poetry publication place and a place for creative writing and the kind of shift to publishing also more academic articles is kind of something new. But, you know, they're working over the same sorts of problems in terms of how you review work. I guess that is another recurring topic that's come up in these conversations is if as a geographer you're presenting work that maybe is 
some form of creative fiction or even nonfiction, what are the standards by which we evaluate that kind of work when it doesn't fit into our familiar models for for what it means to do geography? Yes, this is a this is a this is an extraordinary difficult problem. I mean, it started long before all this started to be published. When you when you go to hear people giving talks in a conference and presenting in an essay form or some other form, and thinking, well, you know, how is an audience supposed to respond? I mean, the, the, the immediate response is, is one of pleasure or displeasure. And you simply say, that was great, or you, know, or, you, or you didn't work for me. But we're not trained to say, well, that didn't work for me because, uh, you know, and, and then start to list the reasons for that in terms of the creative process. We are trained to say, well, you know, you haven't read Deleuze properly, or that argument doesn't work in that, form, that structural form. These ways of doing things don't apply to creative work. And, and most geographers aren't trained to engage with creative work in the appropriate way. You know, on the humanities editorial board, then we do have, you know, people who are artists and creative writers. And, you know, even, I think someone even doing stuff with sound, we're trying to work that out. I guess one more question about the geo-humanities approach. What, how are you going to handle sort of multimedia work? Or, or are you? Uh, well, obviously, there's a hard copy journal. Which is, which is a delight in a way because it's, because it's an association journal, it turns up on the desks of uh, everyone that's an AEG member, uh, which means you can curate it to a certain degree. You can say, you know, someone might actually read this from beginning to end. I mean, almost all journals now are accessed online in what's called granular fat form, which means you only access exactly what you want to read and you don't see the paper next to it. To actually edit a journal which has a presence in a concrete form is really wonderful. But of course, that means that um, any live moving sound scapes get missed out from the hard copy uh, as with every other academic journal it has to have an online version of everything that is hard copy and that has to match it but, but you can have extra if you like you can add um, video and sound that can be referenced in the hard copy that's pretty similar to most journals now i think we were also talking to the aag review of books of having a kind of curations and cultures section of that because that's in totally online uh, that might start to have more going for it. We haven't started that bit of it yet because we were originally going to have book reviews in the journal, but we don't have them now. But we want to join up with the AAG review of books and have a kind of cultural curation aspect to it. I was on holiday recently and reading Harper's quite a lot and thinking it would be really nice to actually mix up the creative parts. And Actually, at the moment, the first issue has papers and then the creative parts in a separate section. Actually, I think in the future, it might be good to mix them up, You know, maybe for every issue to start with a poem. Something like that. So Soils has been out for a couple of years, is that right? Yeah, it's 2013. And Fence is forthcoming. Yeah, it's uh, October. Sometime in October, I'm hoping to read it for the first time since it came out in Oslo in, on October the 14th or something like that. Okay. Um, and are there other places where people can read your poetry? Yes, um, it's, there's a few places now. It's come out because a lot of um, poetry magazines now are online, actually, um, and they reach more, many more people than the subscription ones do. So most recently, if you look up the Stockholm Review of Literature, there's five poems there that came out like two days ago. The Fox poem I mentioned is in something called The Londonist, which is online. There's stuff, there's an there's a online publication called Stairs Nest, which publishes a poem every day or a, or a poet every day uh, with some vaguely political theme. And I have three poems there. And then there's something called, called, is it called The Common? I think it's called The Common, which is um, a British nature strength place writing magazine or something. There's quite a few things, actually. I mean, if you just 
but Tim Cresswell poems, you will find more than that. But they're, they're ones I'm thinking of off the top of my head. Okay, great. Thanks again for, for taking the time out to talk to me today. Hey, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. I want to thank you all for your patience with the rougher patches of the audio in this episode, and to offer my regrets to Tim Cresswell in particular. To learn more about Tim Cresswell and his poetry, you can visit the Placing Culture Tumblr page, placingculture.tumblr.com. You can find episodes of the podcast on SoundCloud under my name, Sean Houston, S-H-A-U-N-H-U-S-T-O-N. You can also find episodes of the podcast on iTunes. You can keep up with all of the news and updates related to the podcast by following us at Placing Culture on Twitter.